This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the peoples from offering sacrifices to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city And on the next day, went on with Barnabas to Derby. All right, so don't tell the 9 a.m. service. I told them that this was my last time up here, but you guys are my favorites. So (laughs) this is actually my last time. You can't tell them. (laughs) All right, so we've probably seen images like this before. This is Jimmy and Nancy. And they're at it again. They're fighting like they usually do when it comes to money. They're fighting about money because they don't have enough to pay the bills. Jimmy's been going out to lunch several days a week, and Nancy's had several expensive coffee drinks every week, and that hasn't made the money problems any better. They only talk or fight about money when there isn't enough, but they don't ever seem to sit down and actually have a talk about a budget. I was reading an article on CNBC.com from January, and I was staggered to read that the average U.S. household with debt now owes over $155,000. That's collectively more than $15 trillion from households in the U.S. that are in debt. This is debt from credit cards or mortgages, home equity loans, auto loans, student loans, or other household obligations. And it's crazy, but it's up 6.2% just from a year ago. That's a lot of money. When you're talking about $15 trillion, 6.2% is a lot. It's no surprise that we often read about financial strain being a leading cause of marital issues. Have you found in your, your own finances that no matter how much money you earn, you never get ahead? Have you found that as your income re- increases, your expenses seem to increase to eclipse the increase in income? And other than in times of emergencies, usually the reason that we find our personal finances out of whack is because of a lack of intentionality. You see, we have to tell our money where to go. We have to program every dollar, every place for every dollar in our budgets. 
And we will never adequately steward the financial resources that God has given to us if we fail to be intentional. And by the way, if you do find yourself, because I don't want to leave you without resources even in this discussion, if you find yourself needing help with budgeting, needing help with how to, how to deal with debt, there is a, a great ministry called Crown Financial Principles or Crown Financial Ministries. I would highly recommend them. They will give you information on a biblical approach to stewarding the resources God has given. Raise your hand if you have been called to gospel ministry. That should be everybody. Excellent. Okay, that was most of us. Last week, Pastor Jamie reminded us that we are all called to gospel ministry. And by being virtues of disciples, that's part of our calling. At Redemption here, we have a a definition for disciple. We define a disciple this way. A disciple is one who is saved by Jesus and empowered by the Holy Spirit to grow into the image of Christ by beholding, abiding, and displaying him to the world. It is that displaying of Christ that it is gospel ministry. It's displaying Christ that it is uh, the investment or the ministering of the word to others. Last week, Pastor Jamie shared for us four requirements for effective gospel ministry. We have to speak the gospel. It requires a little bit of toughness. It certainly requires steadfastness and wisdom. And I would just say this, that effective gospel ministry does not flow from a disordered life. A disordered life where time and energy are consumed with text messages and emails and TikTok, Apple Watches, YouTube. Who has liked my Facebook posts? How many people have viewed my LinkedIn profile in the last 15 minutes? Or what is the next thing that will bring satisfaction and meaning to my life? Like being intentional with stewarding the resources of money, we must be intentional with living a life in which the gospel is central. The call to gospel ministry, the ministry of the gospel of grace, is the greatest mission that we could ever be on. And it's one we've been put on. And not to give away the end of the story, but we cannot live a gospel-centric life if we're not abiding in Christ and if Christ does not abide in us. And so just a little bit moment of transparency. And for those of you that know me, this won't come as a surprise at all, but I have a little bit of a natural inclination for muscling it, especially when things are a little busy, like being part of planting a church. And muscling it is really just a, a nice way of saying the sin of self-sufficiency. It's relying on self instead of being wholly dependent upon God. And I'll have to say that the fruit is not great when I'm trying to be self-sufficient. God has been hammering me lately with this idea of abiding in Christ. And you guys are all familiar with John 15, but it'll be up here on the screen. And there it is. I think. Nope, there it is. Good. John 15 verses 4 and 5 remind us, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Did you catch Jesus' final words there in verse 5? Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are all called to gospel ministry, and gospel ministry is not effective or fruitful if we're not living a gospel-centric life. So our big idea for today, and I apologize for the length of it, and I tried to make it shorter, and I'm just not as good as alliteration as Jamie is, but it is this. 
An on-purpose, gospel-centric life is essential for effective gospel ministry. An on-purpose, gospel-centric life is essential for effective gospel ministry. Now, you may hear the words on purpose, and you may think of a lot of other things, but I want to be clear right off the bat that when I say on purpose, I'm not talking about self-help. I'm not talking about finding your inner purpose, and I'm not talking about works. But what I am talking about is being intentional with living centered and saturated in and with the gospel. In our, in our narrative today in Acts 14, we, we find ourselves where Paul and Barnabas have fled to a Roman colony, a small rural town called Lystra. And in verse 2, just prior to where we are today, we see that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. That led them to making an attempt to stone Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas find out, find out about this, and they flee, and they head to Lystra. And once in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas continue the mission of the work of preaching the gospel. And so in this account here in verses 8 through 20, we can identify then three evidences of a gospel-centric life. First, in a gospel-centric life, God alone is worshipped. Simply put, the act of worship is ascribing worth. And when the gospel shapes our worship, we rightly direct our worship to God. Let's look at at verses, uh, starting in verse 11, we'll read verses 11 through 13. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. You see that when the crowds witnessed the healing of the crippled man, they wrongly directed their worship towards Paul and Barnabas. They saw this miracle and immediately began to work on worshiping Paul and Barnabas' gods, believing that the gods Zeus and Hermes had come down to them. Now, there was a a reason, there was a fable, there was some mythological history in their town that made them very superstitious. So they went to work not wanting to make that mistake that their ancestors had made. They wanted to go to work and worship the missionaries. And we know that they ascribed worth to Paul, to Barnabas and Paul, because of the names that they called them, but also because they they, they brought with them oxen and garland. And I would say that we have a tendency to falsely place the object of our worship on other things, do we not? We have to ask ourselves, what do false gods demand? For the Lystrans, what was demanded, at least they thought, was gifts of oxen and garland. But I'd say, for us, false gods we worship demand our time, our money, our brain space, the time we think about things. And, and tragically, the affections of our hearts. You've probably heard this before, but John Calvin one time famously wrote, Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our hearts are idol factories. Our hearts are constantly turning to other little gods. And we know that they're little gods because the extent to which we will go with time, money, and brain space to satisfy them. We have a a natural proclivity towards four categorical or categories of, of 
main idols, main heart idols. You guys have heard this before from Pastor Jamie, but just as a reminder, they are pleasure, security, comfort, and significance. What does it cost us when we worship these idols? Specifically with pleasure, what's it cost us when we worship the idol of pleasure? This is one that we all know exactly what's going on here. How many hours are consumed with seeking pleasure? How much money is spent trying to satisfy the desire for pleasure? How many lives and relationships have been ripped apart because of worshiping the idol of pleasure? Then there's security. It's a funny picture. Have you ever been with somebody or even as a kid asked this question, what would you do? And you fill in the blank. What would you do for a million dollars? And money really is such a normalized idol for us in the U.S. And we know from Scripture in 1 Timothy 6.10 that for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It is not uncommon for us to think about what lengths we would go to for money. But maybe it's not money that meets your, your need for security. Maybe security to you is stability. Maybe you look for other things of this world to bring you a sense of stability. The problem with that is that is denying that it is God alone who can be trusted in his goodness for our provision. Here's the one that gets me. What about comfort? I mean, don't get me wrong. I struggle with all of them because I'm human. But what about comfort? I often joke about a first world problem that I'm experiencing, and I'm sure that, that many of you have done that. And we live comfortable lives here in America. We live lives uh, of comfort, of easy access to grocery stores, malls, and, and yes, even these wonderful coffee shops. I love coffee shops. I love coffee. I love the smell of coffee. I love working on my laptop at a coffee shop. And I bet you're just like me that you rode in a car on your way here to church this morning. I bet you slept in a bed last night, and I bet you've got a recliner or a comfy couch or something like that to sit on when you watch TV. But let me ask you this. How often does our longing for comfort get in the way of gospel ministry? How often do we choose to run to comfort over a ministry opportunity? Gospel ministry is not, not meant to be comfortable. We've, Jesus even reminds us this in some of his experiences in Matthew 8, 20, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. It doesn't sound like it was comfortable. And we see here in the text today that gospel ministry was not comfortable for Paul and Barnabas. Then there's one more, and that's Significance. And we'll touch a little bit more on significance because I believe that's one of the leading things that led to the brutal attack on, on Paul at the end of our text for today. But this heart, heart idol of significance is the longing for the approval and praise of man. So look at this woman here. She's getting a standing ovation for something she had done. And it looks like she's enjoying it. With a tilt of the head like, oh, thank you. Don't you love when people clap for themselves too? Everybody's clapping and they're like, oh, thank you. I'll clap with you for myself. 
But we all do that, right? Even if we're not outwardly clapping for ourselves, we desire the acclaim of others, don't we? We crave the compliments of others. We spend time thinking about what kind of famous athlete will be. Well, I won't. But many of you probably think about what, what kind of famous athlete you'll be. Are you at all consumed with what kind of legacy that you're going to leave about yourself? Or do you worry about how your kids, how their behavior and how they turn out reflects on what people think of you as a parent? Do you worship the idea of others worshiping you? That's that hard idol of significance. It's nasty. So a couple of things to, as you ponder, particularly the hard idol of significance, are these two questions. First, how does it affect you when you don't receive adoration? How do you feel when you aren't compl- complimented? How, are you, how do you feel when you're not recognized? And then what's particularly appropriate for our, this time in our culture, what would your social media feed say about this? See, idols are false gods, and false gods demand a lot. They demand our time. They demand our money. They demand our affections. They demand those things to satisfy them, yet they are never satisfied. And let's compare that with what the one true living God requires of us. Let's think about our own salvation. What did we contribute to that? Nothing. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not, as a, res- not a result of works so that no one may boast. We have to return again and again and again to the gospel. And you may say, well, Kevin, that sounds great, but what does that really mean? Fortunately, we have the word of God to shed some light on that. On your screens, you'll see Colossians 3, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes something helpful here for us. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. A couple key words there. Seek the things that are above and set your minds on the things that are above, not on earth. Seek and set. Our hearts and minds are connected And what we fill our minds with is what directs our hearts. It's interesting. Do you guys know that uh, there's a growing number of of neck problems, upper cervical problems in the U.S. where the curvature of necks is changing? You guys have any idea why? There we go. Yeah, this. This. We're hunched over all the time. We're looking down at our phones. And it's literally changing the way our necks are structured. We set our minds on those things. We're not setting our minds on the Lord and his creation around us. And I think that's a barrier to recentering our affections on the Lord. 
Timothy Keller sums it up well in his book, Counterfeit Gods, when he writes this. He says, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. This cannot be remedied only by repenting that you have an idol or using willpower to try to live differently. Turning from idols is not less than those two things, but it is also far more. Setting the mind and heart on things above where your life is hid with Christ and God means appreciation, rejoicing, and resting in what Jesus has done for you. It entails joyful worship, a sense of God's reality and prayer, and Jesus must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. He said Jesus must be more beautiful to your mind, your imagination, and then it becomes more attractive to your heart than your idol. We must turn our affections towards Christ. We must remember, rejoice, and rest in who Christ is and what he has done. I find one of the best ways to do that is a a daily reading of Psalms. The Psalms are fantastic for moving our hearts, for restructuring our affections. And so let's just practice this. Let's go to Psalm 119. Turn with me there. Psalm 119. I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 from Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You guys know that we live in Wabash, and so this morning I left our house a little bit before 7. And I ran up to a little town just north of us and then started east across State Road 114. And I have to tell you, I was met with an incredible sight. And that picture doesn't really do it justice, but I was met with the, the sunrise before it had hit the horizon. So it's glowing into the clouds above the, the trees and the fields. And it reminded me of Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Amen, huh? God is revealing himself in creation to us. Yet when we look down at our devices, when our necks are changing their curvature, we're missing these things. We're missing opportunities to recenter our hearts, our affections on Christ. 
we must remember and rejoice and rest in who Christ is and what he has done. So in a gospel-centric life, God alone is worshipped. And the next thing is, the praise of men is rejected. Not only should our worship be to God and God alone, but we cannot accept the praise of which only God is deserving. When Paul and Barnabas heard about how the Lystrans were going to worship them as gods, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd to stop the crowd. Let's go to verse 14. We're going to read that directly from uh, from the text. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things into a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that was it, that is in them. See, Paul and Barnabas knew that pride is a train wreck. They may have even been thinking of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, where pride goes before the destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And the text doesn't tell us whether or not they were allured much by the attempt of the crowds to worship them, but I know in my own life that the approval and praise of man is tempting. And for them, it probably would have been very easy to think about the fruit of their ministry as missionaries, the confessions of faith that they heard, the miracles and the healings. But I am positive that Paul quickly thought about Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. The missionaries recognized the danger of blasphemy and acted immediately. And they acted by tearing their clothes. They tore their clothes. And that was, by the way, a particularly Jewish thing to do. It it, it meant that, hey, this is an all stop. Something is wrong. And in this case, it was blasphemy. The missionaries give us a great example of, of rejecting the praise of men. But on the flip side, what happens when we don't? What happens when our hearts crave the praise of men and we don't reject it? We'll see on the, on the flip side of the story a reminder of the lengths that we go to in sin. Let's look back at chapter 13 real quick in verses 43 and 44. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds were filled with jealousy uh, and and were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They were preaching to the crowd and were told that almost the entire city of Antioch was gathered there. As we continue on in verse 45, we read what happened. But when the Jews saw the crowds, hear this again, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. They were jealous of the response that Paul and Barnabas were getting. And this doesn't stop here. In Iconium, we're told of the same response. In chapter 14, verses 2 through 6, we read, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. 
But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled their Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, into the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Ultimately, this culminated in a, a violent act against Paul that was in anger, and at least, part, at least in part because of the jealousy. The perpetrators were, were jealous for the, the glory that, that they thought Paul was getting, and they wanted glory and honor for themselves. And so then in verse 19, But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. It was the same crowd that we just read about in those two other sections. They went from town to town. They followed him finally to Lystra and ended up stoning him and leaving him for dead. And this is a startling example of when temptation for a wrongful desire of a false god, a hard idol, gives birth to sin. James 1.15 is a succinct, a succinct reminder for us. Then desire, when it has conceived birth, gives, uh, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So knowing that God's worth, word is sufficient for living a faithful Christian life, we are giving, given some instruction in his word about how to avoid sin. We heard one piece of instruction already, and that's from Psalm 119.11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, we don't store up scripture. We don't memorize scripture for the sake of knowledge. We don't memorize it to be smarter than other people. We store up scripture so it can be ministered to our own hearts and so that we can minister it to others. You know, it's the whole gospel ministry thing, right? In Ephesians 6.17, we read, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. You should start to hear a theme now, the word, the gospel. Second, Second Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's not by our own willpower. It's not by our worldly advice that we'll avoid sin. It is by God's word that is active and living in our lives. So in a gospel-centric life, God alone is worshipped. The praise of men is rejected. And finally, people matter. Barnabas and Paul promoted the gospel everywhere they went. They invested Christ in the lives of others everywhere they went to to minister as missionaries. And the text we're in today is bookended with this. They came there to preach the gospel. They got up from there and went to preach the gospel. At the beginning of our, our section, we're told of a man who's sitting that couldn't use his feet. And Luke was super clear to tell us that he'd been crippled from birth and never walked. And we know from verse 7 that this that he was listening to Paul speaking, that Paul, he was listening to Paul preach the gospel. And as he's preaching, Paul not only noticed this man, but the text tells us he looked intently at him. Paul saw that this man was ripe for the gospel. He saw that his heart was softened, and Paul did not miss the opportunity to minister to him. 
Paul didn't just pass right on by him, which I'm sure this guy was accustomed to having happen, but instead really saw the man and connected with him. And we live in a culture of distraction. We often miss these important moments because of distractions. Now, parents, maybe grandparents in the room, let me know if this has ever happened. You're having a conversation with your child, but you're really not paying attention. Maybe you're looking at your iPad or you're answering some emails and you're, uh-huh, uh-huh, only to find that you've agreed to an ice cream trip. And while that's a funny example, that happens. We are missing really important ministry people moments because of distraction. And that's a shame because we're given an incredible privilege. We have the incredible privilege of being on mission for Christ as his ambassadors in this world. By his power and the carrying along of the Holy Spirit, we get to be at work. So as disciples, what have we been commissioned to do? Well, you guys all know this passage well, but from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus tells us, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are told to go. Another way of thinking of that is as you are going. We're told to make disciples everywhere and invest Christ in the lives of others and teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded, which means we're to disciple others. The good news is, is we're not alone in this. Jesus tells us that he is with us always to the end of the age. And so Paul sees that gospel moment right in front of him because he was paying attention to people and the real needs of the people around him. And not only was he paying attention and ready to minister to the man right in front of him, but he took time to exercise a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, the Holy Spirit working through Paul. It was this gift of healing that was there not only to verify the message of the gospel that Paul was preaching, but more importantly, to bring God glory. Turn with me real quick to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. John chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And catch this in verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was to make much of God and bring him glory. We get a similar reminder in 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. It should be on the screen. As we each received, has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, catch this, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Because to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We are given opportunities for gospel ministry to others, not only for the good of the other person, not only because they need it, but more importantly, for God's glory. We are given opportunities for people ministry all over the place, and people represent potential opportunities for relationships. In every relationship, 
we should be a discipleship relationship. Every single relationship we have as disciples of Christ should be a discipleship relationship. John Stott wrote, he's got a commentary of Acts called Message of Acts, and he says this, Wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. It should always lead there. It should always lead to Jesus Christ. And by the way, when people matter, we'll adjust our interactions with them for for what is best for them. Let me give you an example. Let's go back to uh, verses 15 through 17. We read this. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul preached the gospel in that moment with words and context that would have connected with the Lystrans, with their needs, what they needed in that moment. He didn't change the gospel at all. But he preached the gospel because it is the word that does the work. It is the gospel that, that brings forth fruitful change in the lives of others. Reminded, reminded of this from a couple of examples from Acts that I'll just read off real quick. Acts 6, 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts twelve twenty four, But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts nineteen twenty. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It is the word, it is the word, it is the word, it is the gospel. And in that moment, the people of Lystra mattered to Paul. Not only did he make it clear to them the error of their worship, but he preached the gospel to them with words that made sense in their context. This should sound familiar. He spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So to reiterate, that's easy for me to say, huh? You always say this. You should try speaking for a living. My voice is just about gone because I don't speak for a living. But to reiterate something that Pastor Jamie said last week, we should all know the core principles of the gospel. We should know them so well that we can share the gospel in such a way that it connects with the audience. In the Christ-centered exposition commentary of Acts, which was pretty helpful as I was preparing, Tony Merida explains it well. He says, We have no right or need to edit the gospel. But we do need to understand our audiences. We must begin by establishing a point of contact with people, and then we must lead them to the gospel conflict. Often points of contact can be made by simply observing what all humans see and experience and then working from there. We just saw that example from Paul and Lystra. So a few questions for application from this section. The first one is, Do you allow distractions when you're in a conversation with someone? I know we're all guilty of it, but it is is a conversation killer. Do you know the fundamental principles of the gospel such that you can share it with others? And who do you see in your circle of relationship or potential relationships that is ripe for the gospel? I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for the example that Paul gives us gives us a lifetime of examples of on-mission moments where he was redeeming every day. 
And I realize after hearing this sermon, you may be tempted to think that this was all about how to be better Christians, but I want you to be clear. What Luke is pointing out all throughout Acts is that it's about the gospel. What propelled Paul's ministry and what propelled Paul when he rose up in verse 20 was the gospel. So one last piece of of scripture as we finish up here, Psalm 90.12. I want you to consider this. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Time is short, and we have an incredible mission to be on. We must number our days on earth because they are finite. Our days have value because we cannot add to them, and therefore we must be intentional not to waste them. Only when we are living an on-purpose gospel-centric life are we able to have hearts of wisdom for effective gospel ministry. And I know I've asked a lot of questions, but here are two more to leave you with as we, as we depart. The first one is, how will you be intentional starting today about steering your affections towards Christ? I might just offer that the Psalms are a great way to, to do that. And second, what are common distractions for you that hinder on-purpose gospel-centric living that should be eliminated from your life? Faithful living happens one moment at a time over the long haul resting in Christ, and propelled by the gospel. All right, let's pray. Father God, thank you for the day that you have made. Thank you for the breath in our lungs today. Thank you, Father, that we have the gift of being your sons and daughters. Thank you, Father, for the incredible privilege that it is to be on mission for you, to be doing your thing. I pray, Father, from here we would leave different than we came, that we would be consumed with Christ that, Father, that you would be glorified and many would come to know Jesus Christ through the ministry that you allow us to do. We love you so much, Jesus. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you say you are loved, before you say you are loved, let me let you go. I just want to say again from the elders to you how much we've appreciated you, your ministry, your eldership here. I hate today, (laughs) but I love today. Grant, I love you. You leave already. Grant, I love you. And uh, there you are. And uh, I, I'm so thankful that you guys are going off to do this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray one last yeah. time. Yeah, thank you. God, thank you for my friend that you've given me, my son, and their ministry to Wabash. Lord, the, these are gospel relationships. And we recognize that they are not temporary relationships. They are eternal relationships. It's been such a joy to do ministry alongside this, my dear brother, for these years. And I thank you for the gift that you've given us in him. And now, Lord, use him, use Grant greatly. Thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Love you, too. All right. Redemption, you're loved.